This is the Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. This week we have uh, Professor John Graby returning. He's the director of the Warren B. Redmond Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. And uh, we are continuing our constant back and forth when it comes to abortion decisions and indecisions and cases that are going through the, the uh, court system. Um, yeah. <laughs> so welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Um, a lot of the, the, the more immediate thing we've been talking about of late is the Texas uh uh, laws, the Texas uh, laws that recently went into place. But I'd like to just start off with a bit of the historical aspect of it. I feel like we've been the last year just covering case by case, but there's a couple of very important, there's a few very important decisions that basically got us where we are right now. And Roe v. Wade basically is the first one, correct? That's right. Yeah. Roe versus Wade decided in 1973 was a 7-2 to decision, was not a 5-4 decision. And uh, reflecting how much abortion politics have changed since 1973, there were several members of the Roe majority who were appointed by Republican presidents. And one of the two members of the dissent in Roe was actually appointed by a Democratic president. Um, Things changed quite a bit with the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan ran for office uh, promising to appoint uh, judges who would strictly construe the Constitution. He appointed Ed Meese as his attorney general, and Ed Meese was, you know, foremost spokesman for that approach to constitutional interpretation. Roe versus Wade was very much uh, in the crosshairs, uh, it, it, at least rhetorically speaking. Um, president Reagan, and then followed by the first President Bush, uh, had a number of appointments to the Supreme Court, uh, which changed the makeup of the court substantially. Uh, Fast forward to 1989, a case from Missouri goes to the Supreme Court, and it was really only Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's minimalism that prevented Roe versus Wade from being overruled in that case. Um, They upheld a a set of Missouri laws uh, that were pretty arguably at odds with Roe versus Wade, um, and she uh, wrote to say, you know, we have plenty of time to consider whether to overturn Roe. We don't need to go that far. Um, By 1992, Clarence Thomas and David Souter had also joined the court. Lots of people thought um, that uh, Roe was ripe to be overruled in 1992, which was a presidential year. Uh, In a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a number of laws from Pennsylvania that restricted access to abortion rights were challenged. Most of those laws were upheld. Uh, But in the course of upholding those laws, uh, the court did reaffirm its commitment to the core holding of Roe, which is that there is a right to abortion prior to viability. And viability is that point in time in the pregnancy uh, when, at least in theory, the, the, the fetus can live on its own outside of the womb. And it's about 24 weeks or so. Um, And so Planned Parenthood versus Casey really changed the legal analysis that applies, uh, but nonetheless upheld, uh, you know, qualified constitutional right to abortion. Uh, In the years since, the court has continued uh, to give states more and more leeway, also Congress, in terms of regulating abortion in ways that are clearly at odds with Roe versus Wade. So it's somewhat of a misnomer when we talk today about Roe versus Wade, because Roe versus Wade really doesn't supply the rule of decision, but obviously it's just such an iconic case that it's it's sort of shorthand. It's it's the route that basically everything kind of expanded from and leading into Casey and such. So, I mean, basically it's... 
having that marker of amount of time till viability has really been up for debate across the states, especially since Trump was elected, where they're a little more emboldened because of the more recent uh, justices that were appointed. So uh, we got Texas saying six weeks. It's 24 weeks in New Hampshire now with the most recent legislation, correct? That's right. And I mean, is that is that you feel like the thing that's being hit the most because it's the most recent case that kind of just sets the marker for like we just want to offer the bare minimum possible in our state well yeah i mean states uh with a majority of the population that are opposed to abortion rights uh have been testing the limits as you say um and uh state has after state has enacted laws seeking to at least push that threshold back. Um, the most aggressive state laws are, are, are laws that target fetal heartbeat, uh, which can be detected at about six weeks. Um, and some laws have been enacted saying that abortions past the point where a fetal heartbeat can be detected, um, can be regulated and banned. Uh, another issue is the extent to which there need to be health and life exceptions uh, for the mother uh, in the Supreme Court cases, uh, it's understood that there always needs to be such an exception. Uh, Some states, though, have not written such exceptions into their laws. These laws have been immediately um, put on hold by lower courts because they are at odds uh, with, you know, Roe slash Casey. Um, But that sets the stage for the Texas law, uh, which is in effect right now. Yeah, I mean... the a big thing with the Texas law is, is it's at the six week mark with basically no exceptions after that point. Um, but a lot of it is the enforcement is the big uh, issue that could be seen as it, it must be constitutionally uh, uh, at odds when it comes to the federal uh, rules for case history. I'd assume. Yeah, you know. Um, so typically, when yeah. a state yeah, passes, okay. Yeah. So when typically when a state passes the law. Um, the attorney general of the state is tasked with enforcing the law. So if a state passes a law uh, that says, you know, abortions can be prohibited in this state past the point of fetal heartbeat being detected, um, the way in which you would take the state to court to enjoin that law is not to bring a lawsuit against the legislature for enacting an unconstitutional law, uh, but rather to bring a lawsuit against the state enforcement agent, the attorney general. And the reason it's done in this way goes back to a 1908 case called Ex Parte Young. States enjoy sovereign immunity from suit in federal courts. The way we get around that is to say that you can, though, bring a lawsuit against a state official in that official's individual capacity insofar as that official uh, is seeking to enforce an unconstitutional state law. Like the governor or the attorney general or something like That's that. That's right, right. And it's typically the attorney general who's the, you know, the lead, the chief law enforcement officer in the state because the law, the typic, under typical scenario, the uh, attorney general is the one who would be tasked with enforcing the new law. Mm-hmm. And so um, interested parties will bring a lawsuit and get an injunction. Uh, that's typically what happens. The Texas law was designed to avoid that process. It was it was actually dreamed up by a guy named Jonathan Mitchells, former Solicitor General of the state of Texas. And the idea is that under the Texas law, the state is not tasked with enforcing the law. Rather, people around the country are invited to bring lawsuits against those who assist or facilitate abortions. Um, and the idea there is there's nobody to enjoin. Uh, there's right. nobody to bring a lawsuit to enjoin, and that's proved to be perplexing. 
Now lawsuits have been filed. Yeah. Which, which before we get to that, I sure. mean the original, um, the, the Supreme Court got a lot of flack <laughs> in the court of public opinion when it came to the fact they denied striking it down initially, and they said, "Hey, we're, we need cases for this to happen because this is a whole new thing." That's right. Um, I mean there was there was an effort at the district court uh, to to put the law on hold. Uh, the Fifth Circuit, which is a very activist uh, federal appeals court stepped in, took the case away from the district court, um, and and denied uh, a request uh, to stay uh, enforcement of the law. Uh, that was challenged uh, before the Supreme Court uh, a while back, and the Supreme Court uh, let the law go into effect. Um, and so um, the law has been in effect for a couple of months, and basically, as I understand it, abortions are not taking place in the state of Texas. People are leaving the state of Texas to go to other states to uh, have abortions performed. And we talked about, we originally covered the, this new Texas law of, uh, about a month ago on, right. on the podcast feed. If you want to check out law.unh.edu slash podcast, you can listen to that episode specifically. But we, we initially predicted that outside people from Texas have the ability to bring in cases, and it already came to fruition like within the first week of this law going into effect. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and really, the law was designed to, to chill uh, abortion providers and others from engaging in the act. And it has succeeded. Um, abortions, again, as I understand it, have, have, have virtually ground to a halt in the state of Texas. Um, lawsuits are still pending. Uh, and uh, there were there was a since I believe since we talked last, uh, the Justice Department stepped in to bring a lawsuit to seek to enforce the abortion right on behalf of women. And there's some idiosyncratic um, uh, claims in that case as well that apply on like military bases in Texas, claiming that Texas oh, law is at odds with federal law. So that's kind of an interesting case. Then there is the case brought by the providers themselves. The way they tried to get around the enforcement issue is they're seeking an injunction preventing judges and clerks from accepting these cases being hmm. filed. Um, the problem with that is that that same 1908 case that I mentioned, Ex parte Young, uh, made clear that you are not supposed to enjoin state judges uh, from accepting cases um, on the basis of an argument that you know the, the case would be proceeding in violation in violation of, of federal law. Um, so it's tricky. Some new law mm -hmm. is going to have to be made for the Supreme Court to put the kibosh on the Texas law. Now that said, there was oral argument uh, last week. Last Something week, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm losing track of time. Uh, recently, in the Supreme Court, and it does look like a majority of the justices are prepared to extend the law uh, to say that this sort of, you know, uh, law enforcement by bounty. Um, is something that can be challenged in court when it uh, when it uh, subverts federal constitutional rights. Yeah, because I mean, this could be applied to other things in other states. For example, um, say New York City wants to go whole hog on gun rights, like they've been known to do in the past, and have been in the courts recently with regards to, which we'll probably be discussing again later this year. <laughs> but um, it, it could be applied to other things, and just kind of opens a can of worms for enforcement being taken out of the hands of the legislature being responsible for it. That's right. I mean, it really undermines judicial review. It allows states, it provides a blueprint for an end run around judicial review for protection of constitutional rights um, by setting up a regime where it's just colossally risky uh, to engage in the behavior, you will deter, you will chill people on the ground from exercising what is constitutionally protected behavior, and that's the design. But you know what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and as you say, 
um, you know, states with with different values uh, could could enact very similar laws uh, to seek to go around, um, you know, rights that might be disfavored in those states, like you say, gun rights or, or religious freedom rights, for example. So this this, you know, uh, it, it's hard for me to see the Supreme Court giving its endorsement to this sort of law leaving the abortion question aside because it really does leave to the circumvention of judicial review. And the, we have a very uh, conservative-leaning court right now, and I'm assuming they're not going to want to just throw out the whole traditional system that we handle law enforcement. Well, at, at least at the oral argument, it mm-hmm. seemed like the Chief Justice um, and also Justices Kavanaugh um, and Justice uh, Barrett uh, were, were sympathetic to the problems that this sort of law uh, gives rise to. Now, something I feel like has been completely not discussed is that there's an aspect of Roe v. Wade where it's a matter of patient privacy is a huge aspect to it. I mean, is that basically irrelevant to what's going on in this situation? Well, it, you know, I don't know that the court is going to reach the merits of the abortion issue in the Texas case, but there is another case yes. on the docket. I mean, everyone understood that this was already going to be a hugely consequential term for abortion rights even before Texas acted. On December 1st, Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health is going to be argued. That's a case uh, that is arising from the state of Mississippi. There is one facility, as I understand it, in Mississippi that performs abortions. Mississippi enacted a law outlawing uh, most abortions past 15 weeks. Um, that law is flatly at odds with Roe versus Wade and Casey. Um, and the court, after uh, considering that, whether to take that case of, for many, many meetings, it kept putting over, putting it mm-hmm. over, putting over consideration, it added the case to the docket. Um, and I think many people, and in, in that case, Mississippi is actually calling for the affirmative overturning of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and for the matter to be left entirely to the states. Um, so, you know, the court could be maximalist uh, and, and go that far. Um, but I think many observers think that with the new 6-3 majority, the court is likely to find a way at the very least to uphold the Mississippi law um, and in doing so to rewrite um, uh, the law of, 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 of abortion rights. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that case, to, to say the least. Now, an interesting thing, since we had all these new justices added to the court of late, um, is the, there was this huge expectation expectation from an advocacy perspective from uh, the pro-life side of the aisle that the we finally have these conservative justices. We're finally going to get what we want. And that has not been the case, which is basically kind of, um, in my opinion, interpreting what's going on is upholds the uh, importance of the of the courts not being part of Congress. Like it's an entirely different, separate portion of government that is separate branch of government. I mean, do you think like the likes of like Barrett and Kavanaugh basically will want to not want to touch this? I, you know, it's it's really hard to say, and you know that we don't have a lot of data about the two of them. It does look, you know, early indications are that both justices. Uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh um, have some sympathy with Chief Justice Roberts, yeah. who clear, is definitely does not want to touch this. Right. Well, his clear <laughs> his clear agenda is to is to sort of reduce the heat uh, on the court, right, um, and to be more minimalist, minimalist to 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 you know to be institutionally focused. Uh, I think there are clearly going to be three votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, it's and 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 it's funny, like they have been more minimalist and incremental in the cases that they've been deciding after full argument. 
Um, but I just read an, a recent article the other day that was sort of going through how aggressive they've been with their so-called shadow docket, which yes. are the cases that go to the court, you know. Which, which is, a hor- they really need to rebrand that name yeah. <laughs> from a communications perspective because it makes, it really breeds as something, it comes across as something really nefarious when it, it's just, it's an operational thing. Well, that's true. But, you know, it's actually, the, the they don't refer to it as yeah. that. It was actually called that by a law professor, Will Bowd, who, who's, law who's at Jeez. University of Chicago Law School in an, in an article, and it's been sort of adopted. Uh, but Justice Alito actually gave a speech recently, you know, decrying the use of the term saying we've been doing this forever but a lot of you know relatively important cases have reached the court through this different docket Mm -hmm. um uh, lots of cases involving covid restrictions and the intersection with religious freedom rights um uh, and uh, you know other matters over the last couple of years um have gone to the court you know both as you know as as so-called blue states have resisted certain measures by the Trump administration. And now, of course, we see the, the same phenomenon in reverse with um, uh, so-called red states uh, resisting certain measures um, uh, being taken by the Biden administration. So um, the court has been pretty aggressive in those cases. Those cases, uh, you know, often, uh, you know, are, are, are decided without opinion or without much of an opinion. Right. Um, so it'll be, it'll, it will be interesting to see. I, I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm always wrong when I make predictions. Um, um, so I'm not going to make a prediction on what's going to happen. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be surprised if the court overturned Roe versus Wade uh, in the Dobbs case. But um, it's, it's really going to just take two out of three of the, uh, the three justices in the middle who are clearly, you know, um, not comfortable with the rule of Roe right. versus Wade. It, it, you know, but we'll see what Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett uh, do I, I? I would be surprised if Chief Justice Roberts uh, overturns Roe. But again, um, I, I think he's opposed to it, and um, you know, maybe uh, I, w- I wouldn't be totally shocked. So about two minutes left here. I mean, can you give a preview to what's going on with a gun rights case that's been uh, that's going to be that was recently heard in court? Yeah. Um, the um, uh, so in New York has a law uh, that says you need special permission and special reason uh, to. Uh, carry a concealed weapon outside of the home. Uh, That law has been challenged uh, under the Second Amendment. Um, The Second Amendment, um, there's very little case law about the scope of the Second Amendment. There's really only one case. It was decided a little over 10 years ago, the Heller case, uh, which held, first of all, that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to gun ownership that is not tied to militia service. And second, held that that right protects the right of one to have a gun, a handgun in the home for self-defense. So that's the scope of the Second Amendment right right now. Uh, If this state law were to be struck down, that would significantly expand the scope uh, of the Second Amendment. Um, I heard last night, I was listening to a podcast on this, I heard last night that about a quarter of the country lives in areas where there are restrictive laws that would be perhaps called into question by the court's ruling in this case. The oral argument sounds like it was really interesting. Um, Everybody on the court understands uh, that there are certain sensitive places uh, where uh, it makes sense uh, to limit uh, uh, the availability of weapons. How they're going to chart their way through that um, remains to be seen, but it's it's also um, a huge case. Uh, uh, This is shaping up to be a hugely consequential term for the Supreme Court. John Graby, Professor of Law and Director of the Warren B. Rubin Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening to Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help support word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to also check out law.unh.edu slash podcast to see all the back episodes of the show, including articles that are referenced in the different podcast episodes and much more. Thanks for listening.